Hello. Welcome to People Data Insights. This is Paul Ryman, your host and founder and managing partner of Novo Insights. Thanks for joining once again today. This is the third part of a three-part series about pay transparency. But before we get into that, I want to do a quick shout out. You know, we're releasing this episode right between International Women's Day and a day that many uh, recognize as Women's Equal Pay Day. Um, so just a quick comment on, on both of those. Of course, International Women's Day is celebrated around the world to recognize and promote, you know, recognize the contribution of women in society and promote equality in a more gender equal world. And I just find it ironic that it happens to be in the same uh, spirit, same, same time as uh, equal, Women's Equal Pay Day, which is you know, calling out the fact that there's an opportunity gap and a wage gap in the United States where women have to work longer uh, to sort of make the same that men are in a year. And, you know, the math behind that, of course, is just on an uncontrolled basis. You take all the men in the U.S., take all the women in the U.S. and compare their wages, and women earn 17% less. And and a lot of that gap is driven by differences in opportunity. You know, more men in leadership roles, more men in certain occupations that earn more than uh, occupations dominated more by women. So it's not a form of bias, but it is a form of gap. And, um, you know, I, I raise that in the context of the series because, you know, pay transparency is largely around trying to create more equality around pay. Um, so the timing of this series and the timing of this episode is, uh, is helpful from the standpoint that it's, it's framed by, you know, events where we celebrate the impact of women in the world and recognize that there's still a gap in the experience that women have in the workplace. Um, so with that, you know, let's, let's reset where we're at with this series. Uh, episode one uh, of this three-part series was with Chris Ward from Foley and Lardner, where he laid out a framework for thinking about compliance and how does the law intersect uh, with how we need to make decisions in this space and what's changed in that space. Episode two is with uh, Justin Hampton from CompTool, where we talked about what are we seeing currently as organizations adapt to new transparency uh, expectations, different state laws, uh, particularly around posting ranges in uh, job postings. And then today is the third part of the series where I'm rejoined by my common collaborator, Brian Briscoe, um, where Brian and I are going to hypothesize a bit, and we're going to talk about what, what might come from all of this? So we, we know there's been changes in the law. We know that companies are doing things now. But what will the long-run impact be? So Brian and I spend some time thinking through some different impacts and different theories about what might arise. So here's my conversation with Brian. Listen in. Brian, welcome back. Paul, hey, happy uh, 2023, my friend. <laughs> Here we're saying in March. Uh, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been a minute. Uh, anything you want to uh, share about what you've been doing in the real world for the past couple of uh, months? Or? You know, as a, uh, as a functioning compensation professional, I've been uh, pretty busy with the end of the year cycle. So I appreciate, uh, you know, uh, maybe you've given me a little hiatus from this uh, this important gig, but uh, it's been great to listen to you talk to to some of our other friends, uh, even if maybe you said things like you didn't ever want to work for me and you <laughs> want me to work for you. So um, I guess I, I will just have to rule out any other career options uh, that I might have 
had. Uh, There's a related insight here, Brian, which is you called yourself a functional, like, or a functioning uh, compensation leader. Have you ever been accused of being functional before? <laughs> uh, oh, see, look, <laughs> this is what happens, man. You, let me, uh, you know, you do do a couple episodes without me, and uh, <laughs> I got to come back and claw my way back into. You got to deal uh, with me. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, so uh, happy to be back. It's been fun listening to other people talk. I got to say. The best part about not uh, being on with you is that I get to listen to other people talk and hear it myself because I can never listen to these when when I get to hear my own voice. So um, it's been been a lot of fun listening to you here, uh, listen to you talk to other people and and get some perspectives here. And, and uh, I've been kind of excited about today's episode. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, I'm glad to have you back for sure. The world uh, is, well, the comp world certainly knows your pain, as so many have been going through kind of the Super Bowl busy season here. Um, <laughs> and it's an, it's an all-encompassing time. So we were glad to give you a little bit of a break to attend to that and definitely happy to have you back aboard without question. So we were going to talk about pay transparency. We, we have been. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of a thing here. Um, yeah. So yeah, we're, this is episode three of the three-part series. We've talked about the law. We've talked about what we are seeing and, you know, the most recent trend of, of transparency around ranges in postings. Um, so what we wanted to address today is, well, this it's the so what, right? What actually happens now? What might the impact be? Um you know, clearly this is not a trend that is um, just a flash in the pan. I think there's some stickiness to this new era of transparency, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. Um, so it's time for us to understand, like, what might come. So the, the thought for today is to go through some predictions. What could happen? Um, and in some cases, cite some credible research or just some opinions about, you know, what some have said about what may occur. And and see if we think that's still relevant, um, or if that might pan out, you know, in in the current state of pay transparency. So that's the thought. That's the uh, that's the approach for today. Does that work for you? That's great. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, here we go. So um, hypothesis number one is sort of this uh, wonderfully two sided hypothesis, which is like, was this going to make wages go up, or is this going to make wages go down? Right. So is the is the net effect of transparency? going to be an increase in wages or a decrease in wages controlling for other things. And there's Yes. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> that is an easy one to answer. Yes, they will either All go right. up or they will go down. What's the next question? <laughs> so well, let's maybe we'll peel those apart a little bit and take a stance. Oh, okay. um, oh yeah, there you go. That's what you this, thought. Is this, so, is this kind of a show now? All yeah, right. we actually have to have opinions. So so here's, here's some arguments and some incredible work that's been done uh, that might suggest one or the other. So there was a, a study done um, years ago when the CDNAs went into effect, the compensation you know, discussion in the proxy statement that showed that there was an, a net increase in exec comp based on that element of transparency. So the more that had to be shared about executive compensation led to increases in executive compensation. So there's one sort of argument that, well, yeah, when you shine the light on things, then there's more pressure on it. 
and that creates an incentive for it to go up, right? That's I'm oversimplifying mm-hmm. the paper, but you know that's that's one version of the story. Um, now I can contrast that, and you know we'll stop and debate it then. But with other credible work that was done uh, when some law went into effect in California some time ago that required municipal salaries to be posted online, there was a seven percent decrease in wages. So literally the opposite. <laughs> so mm-hmm. at the exec level, transparency increases pay levels. And at the municipal salary level, there's a decrease in pay levels. Um, so I guess, what's your reaction? What do you think if we think about those two effects that have been observed in some credible, some credible work? Um, mm-hmm. Are they applicable kind of in the current state? Um, you know, does one seem to be more plausible than the other in terms of what that effect might be? So what's, what's your take? Uh, yeah. So I think as somebody that's worked in corporate compensation, as well as on the consulting side, and, uh, while I have tried to stay out of executive compensation as much as possible over my career, um, certainly know a lot of people that work in that space as consultants. And I think it's a very different set of behaviors and metrics that happen in executive comp. Uh, and it makes sense to me that, 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 you know, more transparency has led to more, uh, higher pay. You know, I think, uh, you know, you have a very competitive group of people that are, uh, you know, when you think about senior executives, you have boards of directors that are made up of other senior executives who are, you know, Uh, all kind of looking at this thing to say, uh, you know, are we paying people enough to have the best talent to lead our, you know, large publicly traded companies, for example. Um, So, you know, you never really hear stories from the boardroom of, you know, people came out and said, you know, we really want that 25th percentile CEO, uh, or we want one of those performers that's coming, you know, our CFO that's, you know, one of the lowest paid people in, in the industry. It's just not, it's not a natural discussion that people want to have. So you kind of have that Lake Wobegon effect where people, um, people are looking for, you know, top performing executives and they pay to move people around. Um, and I think you also see that you see that, that also, um, if you look at sort of the longitudinal data of, you know, the C-suite, uh, people generally don't spend as much time in their careers as say municipal employees. You don't, ha- you know, there's not that 45 year retirement party uh, from being a, a C-suite executive that often. Although I've worked for two companies that have had that happen, um, maybe the only two companies in America in, the, in recently. But um, but I would say that uh, you know a, a lot of tenure for you know, Fortune 500 CEOs is in that, you know, three to five year range, depending on how you look at some of these things as far as people in the role. It's a, it's a very sort of competitive move up, um, succeed, or, you know, your, your job is on the line kind of thing. So mm-hmm. to see that pay go up that way makes a lot of sense. Just like you see athlete pay go up, um, you know, the more information that's available um, with agencies and, and, um, those types of things. It's a, it's a group that, that a lot of money can be kind of pushed at. I think for, uh, you know, what we deal with in broad-based compensation, if you think of that as a profession and, uh, for sort of the average worker, uh, there's not the same type of leverage. There's not the same type of focus 
And so, yeah, if you take, if you put transparency out there, um, you know, people, people are looking more for a sense of fairness and reasonableness and people are more willing to accept a wage if they know that, you know, they're getting paid comparable to their peers. Um, it's probably, uh, you know, a less, uh, there's probably a better word than ruthless, but there's a less competitive, uh, uh, you know, competitive at all cost kind of, uh, attitude towards, towards jobs at, at more mid-level mid-management jobs, uh, and particularly in municipal jobs where often people are working with a large benefits package or they have retirement. I, I think you just have a very mm. different structure to that. So there's a lot of different facts that just structurally make those results make sense to me. You know, two two sides of it that I see, and one is sort of the third choice that I didn't cite prior, but there there's some some good theoretical economic work that suggests that when transparency increases, individual bargaining power decreases. Meaning mm-hmm your ability to negotiate your salary goes down when it's understood that there's more transparency. Um, You know, so en masse, that creates a credible incentive for an employer to not negotiate. (laughs) Um, So the the distribution, if everybody pictures the bell curve of earnings, uh, which has never really been a bell curve, it's always been a little bit skewed to the positive, meaning there's more high outliers than low outliers. You basically bring that high outlier in you 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 narrow the the width and the variance within that distribution and as a result it's a lower average um so that it's 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 some theoretical economic work about how that works lots of fancy math but it, it kind of speaks to the same logic that you know you just get this sort of normative effect that occurs um i think the other sort of third choice in all of this which i didn't cite is that uh, there's been some tracking of transparency laws going into effect in different places in Europe. Um, you know, one in particular in Austria. Um, and the net conclusion of the paper is this doesn't do anything. <laughs> that there's no noticeable difference, positive or negative, in wages. And that that might be the real answer here is, one, we may never know. But two, it may just be a net... That may not be the outcome, right? I don't. I don't believe these laws are necessarily geared towards increasing or decreasing wages, nor is there a natural incentive just based on transparency for an employer to pay more or pay less. You know, the the work I'm doing with clients now is not about, well, how do I pay people more? How do I pay people less? It's more, how do I deal with the fact that my pay ranges are in the spotlight? Um, You know, what what needs to be different about those ranges without affecting cost is is really the, the usual objective. So no effect may actually be the likely kind of mid-term answer uh, or long-term answer uh, as, a, as a third choice. It doesn't have to be up or down, even though we said yes on the front end of this. Um, it's also possible there's no effect. You always got to do a plot twist on me here. So it could be no effect. I think there's, uh, you know, if you kind of think of this like a zero-sum game, of course there's no, you know, passing a law doesn't create more or less money, Uh in the world, but I do think that there's going to be an impact on individuals, of course, you know, it's, it's in the margins. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you can talk about advanced economic theory, or we can talk about like the brother-in-law effect, which is, you know, I'm not going to have the overpaid brother-in-law of somebody, um, working in a job if I have to be transparent, you know, cause when you find out that Tom over here is, uh, in the job because he's related to somebody and he makes, 
20% more than everybody else because they, you know, don't want Tom's uh, sister to not be able to go on the family vacation or whatever the case may be. You know, those kind of stories have happened in the past. Um, you know, they tend to happen in smaller companies and those types of things. Uh, or I think about even when I was in high school, I had a job and I remember I had a manager that pulled me aside and was like, hey, you're good at fixing the arcade games. Don't tell the other guys, but I'm going to pay you $6.75 an hour instead of the six fifty that everybody is. <laughs> so shh, keep it a secret. Um, so that $0.25 cents an hour has really paid off in the long run. Um, but, uh, but you know, I just, you know, that, that kind of sort of stuff happens a lot in, uh, you know, across America. You know, it's, it's probably not a big corporate thing, but I think in small businesses you have a lot of, a lot of those kind of, uh, if, it, if, it, if everybody knew what was on the payroll, they would scratch their head kind of moment. I mean, Brian, if you had set aside that extra quarter an hour over the how many hours? I know. Uh, I and mean, invested it in Bitcoin over the last. <laughs> yeah, it was a part time job. And if I had, you know, yeah, I could have. It was a long time ago with, with money. It could be worth tens of dollars now. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly if you invested it in Bitcoin, it would have been worth hundreds of dollars and now worth tens of dollars once again. I could buy dozens of eggs with it uh in today uh, uh this is what march 2nd that we're recording this not to give away the secret because the price of eggs yeah. could be dropping <laughs> you have to timestamp that i feel comment. like we have yeah. to timestamp everything here as we're making projections you know predictions and things as, as we record this i mean uh the mandalorian just came out yesterday and i'm definitely waiting on <laughs> I guess by the time this is released, we should be like, wow, that first episode of Ted Lasso season three was really good. My prediction is it's good, but not as good as season one was or whatever, you know, whatever we all say. You're willing to take that prediction yeah, I'll take uh, that without time standing. Yeah. All right. Well, let's um, let's move on to the sort of the second hypothesis of what may come. And, and this one's probably more core to the objective of most of the laws, at least within the U.S., but I think true globally. Um, and the hypothesis is equality, pay equality will increase, but with some asterisk, meaning there may be some consequences that aren't exactly what we thought is how we would go about achieving that equality. And so two um, studies, credible work that's been done kind of on this topic. One is, is rooted on a, a Danish law, so in Denmark in 2006, uh, where some transparency requirements went into place. And it absolutely showed a decrease in the, the wage gap uh, between men and women. But the mechanism through which that gap decreased was by slowing the wage growth for men, not by increasing wage growth for women. So it, it kind of had the balancing effect that was desired, mm -hmm. but, it, but through sort of a negative change rather than a positive change. So that's sort of one bit of work that was done. The second is... Um, a study of academic pay between 1997 and 2017, so a pretty long window, that suggested that equity and equality increased, but that the tie to performance outcomes decreased, meaning that there was less of a reward for quality work. Um, so the, the normative effect of wages came at the expense of you know, the pay for performance mantra that so many of us in the HR world like to talk about. So there's two potential consequences, right? Like, is it through decreasing wages for, for some, or maybe it's just through up, you know, or challenging 
other goods that we have been striving for around pay for performance. So I guess comment on those, Brian. I think there's a logical place for, you know, if you're going to get to equality, um, you know, just saying that we need to pay people more. I've seen some arguments and some, you know, some politicians have come out in different states and basically said, you know, look at all of the lost uh, revenue and taxes and things that we could get if we just close the gender pay gap, we'd have billions more dollars. Um, I, I find I can't reconcile where the extra money comes from uh, in that scenario. So I think logically right. uh, is it's a redistribution, which is, I think, as you get down to job levels and make sure that we have equality for equal work and doing those things, it makes sense that, again, you won't have that sort of the brother-in-law effect or gender bias, or the other things that, uh, you know, pop in just because people feel more accountable about, they feel more likely to speak out about it. You know, people's expectations fall more in line with those things. So I think all of that leads to, you know, generally a more equal and a word that I always try to avoid because it's got so many interpretations, but it gets to a more fair world. And fair is, uh, you know, there's a lot of interpretations of that. But I think you get to a place where there's a level playing field, you know, sort of at all levels of the spectrum. You know, you do that, but um, it's kind of like saying slower wage growth. And, and it's kind of like looking at those economic metrics around inflation and those things. If it impacts sort of everybody at the same time, we don't notice it as much. You know, I, I don't think it means that we, you know, suddenly see uh, massive shortages of people being able to spend money or those types of things. But, you know, we can we can wait and see. Yeah, and I think it's it's worth being clear, right? A decrease in wage growth is not the same as a decrease in wages, right? right. So the the mechanism through which I think that really happens, although this is not how it's sort of cited in the paper cleanly because the data doesn't point this way, but but if you think about what that really means, it just means that maybe more promotions or more outsized adjustments are going to those who in the past did not receive them. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's not, it's not like, Hey Paul, you're a male. As a result, you don't get a raise. That's not how it's working. Right. It's more, you know, that next advancement may be more gender equitable than it's been in the past. Right. So representation equality can create the effect that this paper found in Denmark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Where it just has the net effect of slower growth for men just because they're not getting the promotions at the same rate they were before or those new jobs at the same rate they were before. And that's where, you know, that that's where wages really grow, right? Nobody, nobody's wage growth is really all that impressive uh, inflation adjusted just by staying in spot. It's through those job changes and promotions. So it's that labor mobility is probably what's unlocking that wage growth. Right. Um, so it's not, it's not a pay cut, right? It's, <laughs> that's right. not what, that's not what the study showed. It's more just it gets redistributed in the form of those opportunities going to those who may not have been receiving them before. Right. Yeah. Anytime you use the word decrease in wages in the same sentence, it does tend to um, stir up a little bit of angst with people, but well, well stated. You know, the, the other one around performance-based outcomes, I mean, I think that's somewhat logical as well, right? So we all have this love-hate relationship with paper performance because it's the thing that every comp professional wants to achieve but then the thing that they also feel like they're not achieving, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Like if there's one theme I'm hearing from the uh, from the market these days as people are coming out of the comp cycle is, boy, I put a lot of effort in that to get pay for performance. And what that really meant is that some people got 4% and some people got 3 
Mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> so there's kind of this love-hate relationship to begin with. Um, and it just doesn't surprise me. If, if you don't have, if you need to be careful about who's getting the extra funds um, and, you're, and you're prioritizing equity, well, that, that's going to put pressure on being able to move money based on performance. doesn't mean that there's a gender lean to performance. It just means that you're prioritizing different things. So when you're coaching, inspecting, making special adjustments, right, you've got a different lens on than in the past where we might just say, well, what was their performance review? You know, are they a rock star? Now you're asking more questions. So it doesn't surprise me that, it, that the correlation decreases yeah. um, when you focus more on, on equity. Well, I think what you'll see is there'll be a pendulum swing at some point. Like we'll probably have a couple of years where people adjust to some of the pay equity laws and, and the movement that's coming out. But I feel very certain that there are many smart people who will say, you know, we can still do pay for performance. We need to make sure that our performance metrics are not, you know, systemically biased against women or minorities. We need to make sure that our, you know, that performance is articulated and it's not just like you did good and this person didn't do as good or, you know. We all kind of have our, our four or five point rating scales that we just use the top two or three uh, ratings of. And, you know, these, these sort of subjective, I think that we will see subjective performance sort of slip to uh, be somewhat inconsequential over the next, you know, decade. Mm -hmm. And I, But I think we could get to very, you know, it, and it's very difficult for, you know, a lot of professional sort of thought workers, but... We'll get to more like productivity output type things. Um, easy to do in a factory. Uh, well, not easy to do, but more reasonably done in a factory for many years. You know, how many widgets did you output or, you know, how efficient was your assembly line and your team and that, that type of thing. Harder to do for knowledge workers, um, but but something we'd still, you know, I think we'll see more of a movement to, to look at that. Yeah. <clears throat> this lends uh, a direction towards the third hypothesis I wanted to talk about, which is maybe in the pursuit of, of pay equity, we, we see a decrease in salary variability, but this continues to accelerate the use of variable forms of pay, mm -hmm. you know, bonuses, allowances that don't have a structural impact on pay equality. Um, it's a one-time thing, right? Where, you know, Brian had a better year than Paul, Brian gets more money right now, but maybe that's not rewarded in the form of salary, right? And we've been seeing over time, obviously, variable pay is growing across the economy for years and years and years. It's become more prominent, more roles are bonus eligible than ever before. You know, is this something that accelerates the use of variable pay to be explicitly variable? And then, you know, more of a narrowing of salary ranges, maybe even to fixed rates of, of salary for roles, so that that's not the mechanism through which you reward performance. You use other forms. So I guess what what what's your perspective on that? Can you see you know that playing out where there's even more forms of variable comp that might show up to to address the performance issue? Yeah, I think that's going to be a really logical place uh, for companies to go. It is kind of the you know it's easy to say everybody's got the same base salary in a job. Uh, now we'll just pay you for the performance. I think where it'll be tricky to continue to comply as more reporting things come out. Um, if you look at countries that are that push, uh, you know, broader reporting, and they, you know, if you think about in the U.S. W two wages versus, uh, you know, the salary in your HR system, 
you could still have situations where, you know, just to pick an example that, you know, men have higher W-2 wages than women. And the question goes, did they get, you know, did they actually outperform or did they, were they given, you know, easier goals or choicier assignments or did, did somebody, uh, you know, somebody out on parental leave and so their bonus was prorated and how are those practices impacting those things? All of that can play into big roll-ups. So I would say variable pay is not going to be a no-brainer like loophole for from a compliance standpoint, but I think right. it's going to be, you know, so I would say as a comp professional, uh, I wouldn't be like, oh, well, it's in a bonus, so now it can't be biased because there's no possible way that that happens. I think, I think we have to be really careful about that, but I do think it's a logical place where you, you don't have as much risk. You can correct for that. You can... You think about in sales organizations, you can look at, you know, how goals are distributed and uh, make sure that, you know, you have to think about territories and and sizes and scaling and that type of thing and making sure that the opportunities are equal uh, for the bonuses. But yeah, it's it's definitely a place where uh, you can do stuff. Yeah, good good call out. It does, it's not a silver bullet that gets you away from still having fair outcomes. Right. Because <laughs> uh, most of the reporting is done on a total wage basis, uh, so you can't hide behind it. You know, when we think about the broader lens that an employee uses around pay fairness, it's not just about distributive, you know, who's getting more, but why did they get more and how can I get more? You know, variable comp, I think, has an easier conversation <laughs> than you know, that person just makes more than you and accept it, or they've been here longer, accept it, Yeah. right? Like the, the, those forms of salary disparities, I think grate on people more than you had an okay year and you got a bonus that's less than somebody else. Like that, that sits differently, I guess, uh, is, is where my, my mind's coming from. So that there's, it, it changes the conversation. It's going to put more pressure on, you know, is your performance system or mechanism, whatever it is, you know, unbiased and fair, <laughs> you know, can people set good goals? It's going to change the pressures. Um, but those might be good pressures to, uh, you know, adapt right. And, right. and embrace rather than worrying about the discriminatory effects that might be showing up in, in wage disparities and things Absolutely. like that. So yeah, I think, it, you know, if we go Mythbuster style on that one, that's probably quite plausible, right? Uh, uh, whether it's confirmed or not, we'll see over time, yeah. but it, it feels like there's some plausibility to that. Yeah, for sure. All right. So a, a fourth one, I believe this came from uh, this. This tells you a little the world a little bit about our friendship and what we talk about when we're not doing a podcast. But I think this this came from a text message exchange between us mm -hmm. around. Do we see a change in like how roles are paid from salary to hourly, for example? So I think you would raise the theory that we might see you know, some, some structural changes there, I guess, say a little bit more about where that premise yeah. uh, is coming from. Well, I think what we're seeing in the United States, you know, this whole concept of, of overtime exempt and, and non-exempt work, you know, we're used to having a lot of professional white collar jobs that are paid on a salary. And a lot of times, if you dig into you know, where companies go to justify pay equity, they say, you know, well, yeah, these people are in the same job, but this person has a broader scope. Or, you know, you get into conversations that, that managers will say, well, they have to work harder, or this person's on, they cover their on call on Saturdays, or whatever these types of things might be that are, 
you know, hard to explain and document in a, you know, sort of an exempt world where often, you know, if you think about it with salaried workers, we really, in most companies, the actual hours that they work don't get tracked. Um, you know, part of that is because sometimes if, if, you know, we've probably all had points in our career that if we tracked our hours and then started dividing that by how much we actually make, we might go like, ooh, maybe it's time to, to, to do, you know, like that 80 hour work week made that, you know, six figure salary feel more like 20 bucks an hour. You know, so I think there's a big aversion to we don't try to track those things. We just say the job is the job. On the other hand, we do see that, like, you know, companies make distinctions for that kind of on the side. Um, and, so, you know, and it, but that's harder to explain. And it's certainly hard to explain at a macro level. Well, you know, where do you have differences in pay? Like, what do you, where do you have people have flexible work arrangements? You think about all of the stuff with remote work and what's expected of people. I, I could just see more companies going, you know, if I track hours of people, it gives me more distinction to justify why Jane makes more money than Jack or Jack makes more money than Jane, whatever the case may be. Because I think one of the things that's happening in all of this legislation, regardless of, you know, pay gaps is having to explain to workers why one person makes more than another is going to be something that will be much more normative in the future, I think. Yeah, I can see where pay transparency aside, it's going to be impossible to fully control for the effects of remoteness and pay transparency. The, the natural experiment's not going to be great here because of the convergence of events that's sort of happening in the world. But, you know, I think that changed from remote work. I think the pandemic caused a lot of folks to think differently about what they prioritize in life and asking those questions about like, really, is that worth it? You know, working 70 hours for that? wage when I can go and work 40 hours for, you know, half, but that feels like a pretty good trade-off right now or whatever yeah. the, you know, individual calculus might be, you know, it would not have surprised me to see a desire to, to be more clear about if I work more, I want to make more, right. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there are folks who want that coming out of this sort of change in the, the talent market that's occurred. <clears throat> you know, there are others that see it the exact opposite. Um, as well, just to be clear, right? There's folks that say, wait a minute, if I if I can do my job really well in 30 hours a week, why would I want to get paid less? Right. <laughs> like, I kind of like the fact that I get paid, you know, a flat wage for, for the product that I produce rather than the amount of hours that I put into it. Right. So I could see that kind of balancing out. But I do think there is a, um, a cleanliness, to be clear about. That is one reason why somebody might make more. <laughs> right. You know, they're a hard worker, they're going to make more and, and that's okay. And we don't need to reward them with a higher salary in that form that can be, you know, biased and unequal in some form. <clears throat> but I do think that brings some of the other matters into play that have proven to be true over time, unfortunately, around particularly around gender differences and the ability to work certain hours you know, given family structures the way they are, mm -hmm. you know, in many circumstances, not all, obviously. But women tend to take on more than their fair share of the, the home caring. And as a result, can't work those more hours. So I think it'll, it'll make it more explainable. But my personal fear, I guess, is that the, that could also exacerbate some of the broader trend, the structural things that have caused the gap in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm not proposing that there should be more hourly work. I just, I, mm -hmm. I can see a lot of companies, you know, again, maybe going back to the smaller businesses and the people that are looking for 
you know, the people that have to squeeze the most that they can out of their human capital saying, you know, rather than pay two people $80,000 a year when one is willing to, you know, work an extra three hours a day, that they would, you know, shift that to an hourly rate basis because they, you know, in, in today's world, they could just say, this person works harder, I will give them more money. And not, I won't tell the other person, you know, or, and not in all states can you even do that. Um, but, you know, that was right. kind of the history, you know, 10, 15 years ago, that was sort of the cultural norm. And, and again, especially in places where, you know, one boss controlled the payroll or did those types of things, which is about half the workers in the U.S. You know, you kind of have this divide between half the workers work for smaller businesses and half the workers work for, you know, huge corporations. So yeah, I think there's I think there's there's going to be interesting things that that evolve, you know, unintended consequences. Yeah. So the the last kind of bold hypothesis that I've seen that I wanted to test and it's um I wouldn't even call it a hypothesis. I think it was more just a a thought experiment uh posed by episode 2 of this series speaker Justin Hampton in a LinkedIn poll, which is basically look, if employers are going to start posting ranges, should employees start posting ranges as well, right? So instead of just saying, okay, this job pays between seven and 80000 and then workers self-select and then negotiate within that range, mm -hmm. do we start seeing more candidates before they've even applied? Maybe they say, hey, I want to work for you, company X. Find a job for me that, that pays me $80,000, <laughs> right? Like, do we start seeing transparency on the candidate side was the question that he posed. Again, not a proposal, just a question. Mm -hmm. Um, to be clear, it was uh, basically 70%, 30%, 70% of responses said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And 30% saw it you know, being plausible. So you know, that's out of 800 votes. So it's a, you know, a fair number of comp professionals seeing that there's a possibility there. You know, My own vote was, I actually think I didn't vote eventually, because I struggled or I could see both sides of the debate and some logic about how kind of this double-sided transparency, you know, could have some tremendous efficiency gains, could be a safer way for a candidate to negotiate in ways that they just don't like to negotiate typically, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's a lot easier to just put a number out there when nobody's on the other end of a phone call or a Zoom call. <laughs> it's a lot harder to look them in the eye and say, yeah, but I want 80, right? So there's some, some efficiencies that come from that, you know, and ultimately the the demand uh, demands the wrong word but like the statement of what i need comes out eventually anyway so is this just shortening that cycle so i could see where it's plausible to do so and there'd be some goods from it but it also then flies in the face of well you know the reason that we're pushing on salary transparency on postings is because the corporations have had the bargaining power and this is supposed to open up that bargaining a little bit right and at least be open about what's possible so it would kind of fly in the face of that if we're now saying, well, candidates are going to move first because then they've lost sort of the the space in the negotiation. So I don't I don't know if you voted on Justin's poll uh, or if you were forced to do so where you would fall, but I would probably I struggled between the two in the middle, right? Is it yeah, maybe yes, maybe no? It didn't seem like an obvious yes or no, but I could I could see how it could fall on either side of the fence. So I think uh, being in the middle of a comp cycle, I have to apologize to Justin for missing his poll because he, uh, I know that he posts some good stuff out there. I'm surprised you didn't just go with, the, you didn't write in, it depends uh, as a, uh, a consulting answer. You can't, you can't vote. vote. Like with a write-in, yeah. right? 
you have to pick one of the choices. You know, here's the here's the thing on that. I think a lot of companies' applications say, you know, what are your salary expectations? You know, I think a lot of people fill that information out has been there's a pretty decent response rate. Of course, some people say like I expect a million dollars for a job that isn't a million dollar job, and some people say I want to be paid fairly, and some people say I want to be between zero and a million dollars. You know. Um, like there are things that happen like that. You know, a lot of people, a lot of people in the recruiting space have said, you know, what would your expectations be as a typical screening question? You know, I think about uh, people that are, you know, just professional recruiters. They're usually trying to avoid having that awkward thing where you go through the interview and people fall in love with you and then, you know, find out that they want to offer you $50,000 less than what you're making today. Uh, you know, the, the recruiting industry has been dealing with this for a long time. I would say, you know, what I recommend to people is to be as transparent as you feel that you can be. Um, Like you should know what you're willing to go work for and do that, especially if the company's sharing a range. Uh, I think to me, I've always been upfront about it in my, uh, in the days when I used to take calls from headhunters, for example, Uh, if they called and said, hey, we want, you know, there's this, this and such job, I would... I would pretty much say like, "Hey, thanks for reaching out. Uh, I'm not considering anything that's not above, you know, X number. Um, and maybe that number depended on how good or bad of a day I felt like I was having at the time. Uh, but it was, you know, usually a, a significant number uh, more than what I was making at the time. And I wasn't going to waste time looking for, like, you know, considering a conversation of a lateral thing. And, and recruiters generally appreciated, like, "Hey, thanks for letting me know that." you know, this wouldn't be interesting to you so that we don't, you know, don't waste people's time. So I'm, I'm probably firmly in the yes, do that just because, uh, there's, I saw some study that basically estimated, you know, there are billions and billions of dollars of time wasted where people took a, you know, day off from work to go do five interviews to get to the end of an offer. And it turns out that, you know, you know, you love the people and you love the job, but, uh, you know, the candidate wants uh, an amount of money that's, you know, more than what the boss of the job was making or something. You know, you have those stories. I know, I know people that that has happened to. And uh, usually once that happens to somebody once, they just start uh, dropping uh, a number out because you realize it's a, it's a, it's an emotional roller coaster. I don't think it's fair as a candidate. Um, Whatever leverage that you think you have with the company is probably, sort of overblown by withholding that number early on has has been my sense. Right. One of my broader soapboxes, I guess is probably the right word for, you know, for the compensation function is, you know, over time, I think we need to move away from just talking about jobs and talking about the work that the job Mm -hmm. does. Right. Um, You see this now as people are talking about sort of unbundling skills within a job, really understanding what somebody can do. If you take that to its furthest extreme, right? Like I did this little experiment back uh, before the holidays where I decided I was going to build a web application. I don't know anything about how to actually build a web mm-hmm. app, right? So I had to, but I'm like, I'm going to understand the work. I'm not just going to hire somebody to build it. I want to unbundle it and understand what are the different components. And what I discovered is there's actually, you know, this is an obvious statement, but a very vibrant marketplace out there where you can buy the work buy the piece with very transparent pricing, right? So I need somebody to build the database. I need somebody to build 
sort of the front end interaction. I need somebody to manage the connection between the two. I need somebody to build the, lo- you know, the logo and the design of the site, all of which came at a flat rate, right? So if, if you take it to sort of its furthest extreme, when you focus on the work to be done, that has a price mm-hmm. <laughs> in the marketplace today, right? If, if you really unbundle the work from a bundle of things, which is a job and say, here's what's getting done. I use that as an example about how if you kind of fast forward as the rise of you know the gig economy, the gig worker continues to to grow, um, as people think more flexibly more flexibly about how they accomplish work, you know there's there's a space where somebody says, "Look, I'm really good at this thing, and I charge forty bucks an hour mm-hmm. for it, <laughs> right?" And it's very clear, and it's less about employment and more about sort of getting the work done. And if that's the way that work gets done, then workers, you know, who choose an employment path have to compete in that labor market, right? So I can go buy a contractor for 40 bucks an hour, or I can hire an employee, but I want to know what they want to, right? So I could see there are the market forces where things become more transactional, more skill-based, you know, more deliverable and outcome-based could put some pressure on workers being more transparent with their rate of pay because they already are in the, you know, in the contractor or in the, in the gig based market as it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we probably have to be thoughtful about how deep down like the internet gig worker uh, path we want to go, but there's, there is pretty much a price, uh, you know, I mean, we, you know, we're not quite to the Amazon level of, uh, of labor yet, uh, where you can get, you know, like with you think about products, um, I can't think of anything that I haven't bought on amazon.com. Um, it's not a plug for them, but you know, like they sell everything. I don't, I don't, I guess there's still other stores. Like I know, I know there's Costco and there's Amazon and those are the, both send everything to my front door. And there's labor that brings that too. Like there's a there's transparent labor about you know who will bring the DoorDash uh, when I uh, don't have time to stand up from a meeting and leave my desk. There's a lot of things where the labor market has become very transparent. So I I think that's going to continue to be a thing. I think you know I think cultural shifts. You know, you have people that are much more used to talking about these things publicly now. I think that's that's one of the things that's probably underrated in pay transparency is generational shifts. You know, I don't think my, mm. uh, you know, we're roughly the same age, and I don't think my parents' generation, anybody ever talked about, you know, their money, their pay, or those things out loud. And uh, I feel like uh, when I talk to younger people, um, I'm like, I, I kind of feel like we're going to, you know, like my kids are probably just going to get QR codes tattooed on their forehead and you're just going to scan it to find out how much it costs to get them to, you know, mow your grass or make your spreadsheet or ask chat GPT a question for you, whatever it is that they, I don't know what jobs are actually going to have, but you know, they'll probably just have like a price list that you, you know, scan off of a RFID tag or something like that. Um, it's, it's, there's a, there's a whole new world kind of coming from that standpoint. Yeah. I guess it's again, plausible that sort of transparency won't be one-sided that there's, there's reasons and logic why that transparency will become, you know, on both sides of, of the telemark yeah. for sure. I guess. So those are the, the hypotheses that I've sort of seen bantered about, um, any other, 
kind of closing thoughts, Brian, on the on the topic of what may come as salary or as pay transparency continues to rise? Yeah, uh, if I was just gonna, you know, throw it out there because I feel like our audience is, um, you know, a lot of compensation and HR people keeping an eye on the news with what's happening with the EU uh, pay transparency directives. A lot of changes there. It's kind of a big deal. Um, if you're not, you know, if you're doing business in the European Union uh, and you have more than, you know, a couple hundred employees there, that should probably be on your watch list. Um, uh, you know, there's certainly some stuff happening in Australia and some places like that, too. So I think we have we probably have friends all over the world that are that are talking about these different things. Uh, but that both of you and I have in our network, but uh, yeah. I would say that it's happening in the in the U.S. Um, more states are picking up different things to make it a requirement. Um, you know, the other piece of that, besides just that awareness, is uh, make sure that you think about this as what is the opportunity to engage with your employee population. You know, if we just treat all of these things like it's a compliance thing that I have to do you're probably not going to get the full benefit of um, how can I be a better compensation person? How can I be a better HR person? How can I be a better recruiter? Um, All of those things, uh, when the paradigm shifts, that there's always an opportunity to, uh, to find something to be better. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's one of the things I try to challenge myself on my, uh, on my best days to remember to do. So uh, I think that's probably a worthwhile thing for everybody. Yeah, I I think that's good advice. I um on the you know, engaging with your workforce and sort of challenging yourself to be better. I think, you know, my closing thought on that is that transparency, in my opinion, and I don't think everyone would agree with this, but transparency is really a tool that gets us towards fairness, right? So the goal I don't believe is let everybody know what everybody's paid. It's more, how do we make sure that people are treated fairly and there's consistency underneath that fairness? And, and fairness isn't just about who gets how, how much. <laughs> um, it's not just about knowing what's possible, although those are parts of how you can help somebody feel like their pay is fair. Um, you know, but I'd love to see the conversation evolve in the future within the compensation function around well, what does fair pay mean? And there's some good models out there that talk about, you know, how do you help people know how decisions are made? And how do you make sure that people are treated well in that process, just around managing, you know, having good conversations about expectations and, you know, empathy when there's outcomes that they don't like. And, you know, those contribute to fairness as well. And I don't want to minimize the need for pay equality. Um, but I believe, again, it's all in the spirit of fairness. <laughs> you have to get to equality. I get that. And the distribu- the distribution of dollars needs to be appropriate. Um, but that's not the only outcome. Right? People also need to understand how and why things were done um, and, and feel good, as good as they can about that process. So um, I do see this as an opportunity for us to up our game. Right, Never before as a comp person really had a product that was open to the world where they can see their salary ranges. And and this is a good opportunity to challenge ourselves to say, well, how can we advance the conversation around fair pay within our organizations? Yeah. Great points, Paul. 
Well, Brian, it's been it's good to have you back, man. Yeah, um, likewise. As fun as it was to chat with some other folks and uh, and get some new perspectives, uh, it's you know it's good to have you back. So appreciate that you've been through a busy season, and uh, hopefully it won't be another couple of months before. No, <laughs> before no, you're let's, able to let's come do this, on. and maybe we might have to have some dueling episodes or something too, because. Um, it, it, like I, oh should we plug like i think justin hansen and i have to have like a uh, competitive speaking uh time slot uh at the world at work conference this year so if if any of our friends are going to be out there you're going to have to it looks like you right now you got to pick a side do you go with the do you go with the uh you know clever good looking guy or do you go with uh, me so um <laughs> So uh, I, was, I was waiting to see which side you were going to take on that yeah, one. That's I was for sure. Gonna, like, do you go with the do you go with the before picture or the after picture? You know, those <laughs> kinds. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, but uh, but uh, love Justin to death. But uh, you know, we we will be out there uh, trying to talk about nerdy stuff. But uh, I understand we're we're missing you this year, Paul. But. Uh, I am. It's uh, a, a, you could argue either a poorly timed or a really well timed family vacation that I'm just not going to change. <laughs> you know, I we tried to take a family vacation a year ago that ended up with all of us getting COVID at Disney World. So this uh, knock on wood as many times as I can. Hopefully, this will be the real vacation that we wanted to have uh, for the past couple of years and. And the boys are excited about it. So it was not something I was going to move. Uh, as much as professionally, I'd love to see the, the Maya network and and be around uh, family first this year. But I'll be I'll be ready to see people next year. That's for sure. Well, that's a decent choice. I think Kim and the boys will probably appreciate it. So <laughs> they they might like me for this one. Yeah, uh, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> good deal. <laughs> we'll see. All right, take care, Paul. Excellent. Thanks for your time, Brian. Always good to have you back. Thanks. So there you have it, a conversation with the Brian Briscoe about what is coming uh, given the realities of pay transparency. Um, hope you found that helpful. I know I always enjoy a conversation with Brian. His insights and his humor related to the world of compensation are uh, unmatched. So that was fun for me, and I hope it was fun for you. After this, we'll probably move away from the topics of pay for just a little bit. Uh, talk a little bit more about what's going on in the HR technology space and in the HR analytics world. Um, certainly an area with lots of innovation, lots of focus, lots of investment. Um, so I'm excited to bring some thoughts about what we're seeing, um, talking to some other folks uh, in the space who are engaging uh, with the market in unique ways and with unique perspectives. So um, for those compensation folks out there, now's a chance for you to uh, expand your horizons a little bit, maybe post merit season. Um, and for those of you who are not in the comp space, we'll be uh, getting into some topics that might be a little bit closer to home for you. So uh, if you don't want to miss an episode, make sure in your podcast platform, you go ahead and click that follow uh, or equivalent button, uh, subscribe so that new episodes are automatically delivered to you as they're released. We aim to release an episode every other week. Um, so you want to stay on top of that. As always, if you appreciated this or found this helpful, we would appreciate if you could go ahead and do a couple of things for us. One is find a LinkedIn post from Novo Insights or from me on this episode where we've released it and feel free to give that a share. 
uh, or a like. Um, that helps others be aware of the content and uh, others then can benefit from the same uh, experience that you are having. Um, you can also do the same within your podcast platform. Go ahead and click like. That helps the podcast robot suggest it to other people who might just be searching for similar content. As always, I appreciate you listening. Thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Paul Ryman. I am the founder and managing partner of Novo Insights, where we help people teams think differently to make a bigger impact in their organization. Until next time.